It is an honor to be invited into your pulpit this morning. I come to you from right down the road where I serve as assistant minister for pastoral care at the Unitarian Universalist Church of Davis. But while I do serve the UU Church here in town, I am an ordained Baptist minister from South Carolina. And as an ordained Baptist minister with this sort of mythology around Baptist preachers that are supposed to be able to just open the Bible and preach a good sermon right there in the moment, I was a bit embarrassed when I opened the lectionary text in preparation for this sermon today. When I read to the end of the passage, I thought, I'm not really sure what I'm supposed to do with this. So I read it over again and again, and still I thought to myself, there is absolutely nothing to preach from this passage. Whoever put the lectionary text together really screwed it up, and that's the problem with committees. There just didn't seem to be anything to preach in this text of Scripture. But then I thought, Perhaps it isn't a problem with the lectionary or the committees that put it together or even the scripture text itself. Instead, I realized as I read the text over and over again that the reason that I couldn't figure out how to craft a sermon out of this text is that this scripture contains everything that good liberal Christian folks really don't want to talk about ever except for maybe the verse where Jesus goes off alone to pray. That one sentence felt pretty safe. But the rest of the text, miraculous healings of physical illness and demon exorcism, are not exactly the fodder for many sermons preached from the pulpits of mainline Protestantism these days. We're a bit embarrassed by these sorts of things, and understandably so. We've all encountered too many TV preachers and traveling evangelists dramatically laying hands on the sick and infirm, the ensuing falling down and flailing about of those supposedly healed by a presumed miraculous act performed in the name of a God that we're all pretty sure doesn't work like that. And even if the divine did do those sorts of things, we're still pretty sure that a massive monetary collection from the congregation wouldn't be necessitated at the end of the service. And demon exorcism. Well, I mean, that's another problem entirely. All I could think about when reading this text were the disturbing scenes from the 1973 classic film, The Exorcist. And we definitely don't do that. So what do we do with a text like this one? The gospel reading selected for us by the lectionary on this day, the fifth Sunday after Epiphany. Normally, we'd be quite careful to read around these problematic vignettes in the gospel texts so that we can keep our awkward explanations about our sacred scriptures and interpretive caveats about historical context to a minimum. Those can get cumbersome after a while. But that's the beauty and the danger of lectionary preaching. Every now and then, one of these little troublesome texts will show up, and not even in the epistle reading for the morning, but right there in the gospel text for the day. 
So I figured that on a day when a Baptist preacher who works for the Unitarian Universalists is invited to preach in a United Methodist congregation, as if that wasn't confusing enough for everyone, I might as well just go ahead and preach about exorcisms to really round out the morning. It's a passage bearing all the particularities and peculiarities of Mark's writing. In the typical frenetic pace of Mark's gospel, this small passage, just 12 sentences long, represents a time span of 24 hours, with the activity of Jesus taking place in four different locations. If, as many scholars suggest, Mark was the first of our four gospels to be written, then we have here in this very passage the first physical healing that Jesus ever performs in our gospel text, the healing of Simon Peter's mother-in-law. And amid the healings and exorcisms, the crowd continues to grow and clamor, and in Mark's very hyperbolic description, the whole city was gathered around the door. And even when Jesus breaks away from the others very early in the morning for a little peace and quiet, Peter and Andrew and James and John come looking for him because, as they report, everyone is searching for you. But lest we think that Jesus was unique in his ability to attract a crowd in these spectacular ways, Eugene Boring reminds us that Mark's gospel can be read against the turmoil of the years that led up to the Jewish revolt when charismatic figures who gathered crowds in the desert places usually sought to inaugurate rebellion. Healers who could attract great crowds were not such uncommon phenomenon, you see. But Boring points out Mark is careful to show readers that Jesus did not lead the crowds out into such a place. They would seek him on their own. And it's not difficult to understand why, really. I suppose it's the same reason those televangelists we're all so suspicious of can still fill up an arena full of people when many of our own progressive mainline churches struggle just to stay alive. Things like exorcisms and dramatic healings can really draw a crowd, both then and now. And we, well, we just don't do those sorts of things. They're even a little embarrassing for some of us preachers to talk about on a Sunday morning when they come up in the lectionary. And the whole city was gathered around the door. Everyone is searching for you, they said. It's easy to see why, isn't it? But what isn't so clear is why things took such a drastic turn for the worse. Why the crowds eventually turned against him. That's what we miss when we get too wrapped up in either the ecstatic spectacle or the uncomfortable controversy of these healings and exorcisms. How does Mark's gospel move from its first chapter where he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up and they brought to him all who were sick or possessed with demons and the whole city was gathered around the door and he cured many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons all the way to the end of Mark's gospel when they were looking for a way to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. And Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him. 
And they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over. There's something about the excitement and spectacle, and even the controversy surrounding healings and exorcisms, that averts our attention away from what is most significant about these passages of Scripture. Jean Vanier is a figure well acquainted with healing, with exorcisms even. In 1964, Vanier, the son of the Governor General of Canada and himself an officer in the Royal Canadian Navy, moved to a small village north of Paris, France, where he invited two people with developmental disabilities to leave the institutions in which they were housed to come and live with him. Vanier was troubled by the conditions of institutionalization that separated persons with developmental disabilities from their families and their communities, and he imagined another way of forming supportive living spaces for a group on the margins of society. This began a movement of non-institutionalized communities of persons with developmental disabilities living together alongside non-disabled companions that is now known as L'Arche which translates the ark, a movement that has spread all over the world. L'Arche is now comprised of 147 communities in 37 countries, all communities where people with a range of intellectual and developmental disabilities live alongside temporarily able-bodied companions in intentional community with one another. L'Arche has been a place of solidarity and supportive community for some of the world's most vulnerable citizens for 50 years now. Incidentally, if you didn't previously know the name Jean Vanier, perhaps you know the name Henry Nouwen. Vanier was an important figure in Nouwen's life, a relationship that led Nowen to leave his post at Harvard in 1986 to live at the L'Arche community in Toronto, where he spent his last 10 years of life companioning the community members of L'Arche, recovering from his own severe depression and writing some of the most profound books he ever wrote, many of which you have no doubt read. Reflecting on his life's work, Vanier says... The greatest pain is rejection. The feeling that nobody really wants you like that. The feeling that you are seen as ugly, dirty, a burden of no value. That is the pain I have discovered in the hearts of our people. Vanier's long experience working with the vulnerable of the world has taught him that fear is at the root of all forms of exclusion, just as trust is at the root of all forms of inclusion. That's where we might come to a bit more clarity on how Jesus went from clamoring appreciative crowds to betrayal and arrest and execution. Chad Myers explains that in the symbolic order of first century Judaism, illness and most certainly demonic afflictions were associated with impurity or sin, and being in such a state meant exclusion from full status in the body politic. Rather than a simple spectacle of healing or exorcism, Meyer says that Mark's Jesus seeks always to restore the social wholeness 
denied to the sick and impure by this symbolic order. Both acts defy the symbolic order that segregates those lacking bodily integrity. Both challenge the prevailing social boundaries and class barriers. In this way, Jesus was not simply a healer like so many others who knew how to attract a crowd. Instead, he was a genuine threat to the oppressive social order, upsetting the boundaries between those who were insiders and those who were outsiders in society. Meyer says that insofar as this order dehumanized life, Jesus challenged it and defied its strictures. That is why his miracles were not universally embraced. Depending upon one's status in the dominant order, one either perceived them as socially deviant, or worse, heretical, or liberative. But before we look down upon the social symbolic order of first century Judaism, we too must own up to our own problematic social order. In the presence of the 11.1 million undocumented immigrants living in the U.S., we must own up to our own social order that dehumanizes and denigrates those who, whose movement across borders subjects their bodies to economic exploitation and the falsehoods of political scapegoating. When our nation's 610,042 citizens living in persistent homelessness have their physical, mental, and communal well-beings overlooked by a political system that caters to the well-fed and the abundantly housed, we must own up to our own social order that demonizes the victims of an exploitative economic system in which the rich get richer and the poor not only get poorer, but the rich devise new ways to make money off of the poverty of their fellow citizens while writing the rules to an economic game that most of us can never even hope to play. In a world that Oxfam International so shockingly revealed to us last year, in which just 85 people, 85 individual human beings, there are probably about that many in this room right now, a world in which 85 individuals possess the same amount of wealth as the poorest 3.5 billion people combined. We must own up to our own social order in which segregation does not just draw imaginary lines between the neighborhoods in which we live, but also between the largest geographic divisions of the earth, averting our gaze from those whose lives are ravaged by multiple systems of oppression so that we can pretend that all is well so long as we don't see. When we live in a country with 2.2 million disproportionately black and brown bodies currently incarcerated in U.S. prisons and jails, we must own up to our own sick social order that not only divides but demonizes difference and capitalizes on our myriad confined fellow citizens whose bodies are rendered profitable to a growing private prison industry. It's time for an exorcism. 
And today we are confronted with an uncomfortable passage of our sacred text from which a call emerges. A call to follow Jesus into the work of spreading the liberative good news of a social order ready to be turned on its head. A call to begin now restoring to social wholeness those excluded from full status in the body politic to exercise the demons that we have projected for too long onto those in our own social order who are denied the benefits of their full humanity by systems of oppression that denigrate myriad embodiments of human difference based on race and gender and class and sexual orientation and gender identity and ability, etc. You see, if you interpret these texts too literally as necessarily about the miraculous physical healings and the exorcism of supernatural demonic persona, then you've really missed the truth of these texts. But if, like me, when I first opened this lectionary text, you read these texts and think, well, there is really nothing in these texts for a good, thinking, liberal Christian like me. This is just a silly story with that more primitive and less enlightened people once believed long ago, glad to be all past all of that superstitious stuff. Then you, too, have missed the truth of these texts. But I promised something in the title of this sermon that I'm afraid I have not quite delivered upon. How to perform an exorcism. That's the problem with having to submit a title before you've written the sermon. You can get a little ahead of yourself sometimes. If your image of exorcisms is shaped primarily by your memory exorcist, then holy water and a crucifix are necessary implements. Uh, while these and other religious symbols can be very powerful for folks to whom they are indicative of the depth of faith experience, I suspect that you and I don't normally have ready access to these instruments. So, here are some of the instruments for performing exorcisms that you probably have readily available to you. Eyes that look into the faces of those who rarely meet the equal gaze of another human being. Looking on with compassion and love in a social order intent on averting our gaze from those whose lives are ravaged by multiple systems of oppression. Ears that are attuned to the voices of those rarely heard whose voices are denied audibility in a social order that demonizes the embodiment of human difference. Hands willing to touch those who rarely receive the warm, loving embrace of another human being in a social order that segregates and excludes from full social status within human community. Voices, Voices that speak the good news that a radical reversal of the social order is at hand, calling upon your siblings in the journey of faith to recognize the sickness of a social order that dehumanizes and denigrates and diminishes the possibilities for flourishing of life for your neighbors. He came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. 
restoring her to social wholeness. And they brought to him all who were sick or possessed with demons. And the whole city was gathered around the door. And he cured many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, subverting the social order that kept them segregated and cut off from human community. With a text like this, on a day like today, it's time for an exorcism. Exorcism. 